You're listening to Voices of Church Past. I am your host, Rob Barnhart. Today, you'll be hearing the final words of St. Basil on his work called De Spiritu De Sancto. The word in, say our opponents, is exactly appropriate to the spirit. It's sufficient for every thought concerning him. Why then, they ask, have we introduced a new phrase saying with the spirit instead of in the Holy Spirit, thus employing an expression which is quite unnecessary and sanctioned by no usage in the churches? Now, it has been asserted in the previous portion of this treatise that the word in has not been especially allotted to the Holy Spirit, but is common to the Father and the Son. It, it has also been, in my opinion, sufficiently demonstrated that so far from detracting anything from the dignity of the Spirit, it leads all but those whose thoughts are wholly perverted to the sublimeless height, and remains for me to trace the origin of the word with, to explain what force it has, to show that it's in harmony with Scripture, of the beliefs and practices, whether generally accepted or publicly enjoined, which are persevered in the church. Some we possess derived from the written teaching, others we have received delivered to us in a mystery, by the tradition of the apostles, and both of these in relation to the true religion will have the same force, and these no one will gainsay no one at all events who is even moderately versed in the institutions of the church for where are we to attempt to reject such customs as have no written authority on the ground that the importance they possess is small we should unintentionally injure the gospel at its very vitals or rather should we make our public definition a mere phrase and nothing more for instance to take the first and most general example who is thence has taught us to write to sign with the sign of the cross who trusted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What writing has taught us to turn to the east at the prayer? Which of the saints has left us in the writing of the words, the invocation at the displaying of the bread, the Eucharist, and the cup of blessing? For we are not, as is well known, content with what the apostle or the gospel has recorded, but both in preface and conclusion, we add other words as being of great importance to the validity of the ministry, and these we derive from unwritten teaching. Moreover, we bless the water of baptism, the oil of the chrismum, and besides this, the catechumen who is being baptized. On what authority do we do this? Is it not our authority silent in mystical tradition? Nay, by what written word is the anointing of the oil itself taught? And whence comes the custom of baptizing thrice? As to the other customs of baptism, from what scripture do we derive the renunciation of Satan and his angels? Does this not come from that unpublished and secret teaching which our fathers guarded in a silence out of reach of curious meddling and inquisitive investigation? Well, had they learned the lesson uh, that the awful dignity of the mysteries is best preserved by silence, what the uninitiated are not even allowed to look at was hardly likely to be publicly paraded about in written documents. What was the meaning of the mighty Moses in not making all the parts of the tabernacle open to everyone? The profane he stationed without the sacred barriers. The first courts he conceded to the pure. The Levites alone he judged worthy of being servants of the deity. Sacrifices to burnt offerings and the rest of the priestly functions he allotted to the priests. One chosen out of all he admitted to the shrine. And even this one, not always, but only on one day of the year. And of this one day, a time was fixed for his entry, so that he might gaze on the Holy of Holies, amazed the strangeness of novelty of sight. Moses was wise enough to know that the contempt stretches to the trite and to the obvious, while keen interest is naturally associated with the unusual and the unfamiliar. In the same manner, the apostles and fathers, who laid down the laws for the church from the beginning, thus guarded the awful dignity of the mysteries and secrecy 
and silence. For what is brooded abroad and random among the common folk is no mystery at all. This is the reason that our tradition of unwritten precepts and practices, that the knowledge of our dogmas may not become neglected and condemned by the multitude through familiarity. Dogma, kerugma, are two distinct things. The former is observed in silence. The latter is proclaimed to all the world. One form of this silence is the obscurity employed in scripture, which makes the meaning of dogmas difficult to be understood for the very advantage of the reader. Thus we all look to the east at our prayers, but few of us know that we are seeking our old country, paradise, which God planted in Eden in the east. We pray standing on the first day of the week, but we do not all know the reason. On the day of the resurrection or standing again, we remind ourselves of the grace given to us by standing at the prayer. Not only because we rose with Christ and are bound to seek those that are which are above, but because the day seems to be, in some sense, the, an image of the age which we expect. Wherefore, though it is the beginning of days, it is not called by Moses first, but one. For he says there was evening, and there was morning, one day. As though the same day often reoccurred, now one and eighth are the same. In itself, distinctly indicating that really one and eighth, of which the psalmist makes the mention of which the psalmist makes mention of certain titles of the psalms. The state which follows after this present time, the day which no one knows, no waning or even died, no successor, that age which ends not or grows old. Of necessity, then, the church teaches her own foster children to offer their prayers on that day standing, to the end, that through continual re reminder of the endless life, we may not neglect to make provision for our removal there. Moreover, all Pentecost is a reminder of the resurrection expected in the age to come. For that one and first day, if seven times multiplied by seven, completes the seven weeks of the Holy Pentecost. For beginning at the first, Pentecost ends with the same, making fifty revolutions through the like intervening days. And so it is a likeness of an eternity, beginning as it does and ending, as is a cycling course at the same point, on this day, the rules of the church have educated us to prefer the upright attitude of prayer. For by their plain reminder, they, as it were, make our mind to dwell no longer in the present, but in the future. Moreover, every time we fall upon our knees and rise from off them, we show by the very deed that by our sin we fell down to earth, and by the loving kindness of our Creator we're called back to heaven. Time will fail me if I attempt to recount the unwritten mysteries of the church. Of the rest I say nothing but the very confession of our faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What is the written source? Time will fail me if I attempt to recount the unwritten mysteries of the church. Of the rest I say nothing but the very confession of our faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What is the written source? If it be granted that we, as we are baptized, so also the under obligation to believe, we make our confession in like terms as our baptism, in accordance with the tradition of our baptism and in conformity with the principles of true religion. Let our opponents grant us to the right to be as consistent in our description of glory as in our confession of faith. If they depreciate our doxology on the ground that it lacks written authority, let them give us the written evidence for the confession of our faith and the other matters which we have enumerated. While the unwritten traditions are so many, they're bearing on the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16, and it is so important. Can they refuse to allow us a single word which has come down to us from the fathers which we have found derived from untutored custom, and abiding in unperverted churches, a word for which the arguments are strong and which contributes 
in no small degree to the completeness of the force of the mystery. The force of both expressions has now been explained. I will proceed to state once more wherein they agree and wherein they differ from one another. Not that they are opposed to mutual antagonism, but that each contributes its own meaning to true religion. The preposition in states the truth rather relatively to ourselves, while with proclaims the fellowship with the Spirit with God. Wherefore we use both words by one expressing the dignity of the Holy Spirit, by the other announcing that grace is, that is with us. Thus we ascribe glory to God both in the Spirit and with the Spirit. Herein not is our word that we use, but we follow the teaching of the Lord as we might a fixed rule, and transfer his word to things connected and closely related, of which the conjunction in the mysteries is necessary. We have deemed ourselves under a necessary obligation to combine our confession with the faith of him who is numbered with them at baptism. We have treated the confession of the faith as the origin and parent of the doxology. What then is to be done? They must now instruct us neither to baptize as we have received or to not believe as we were baptized, or to not ascribe glory as we have believed. Let any man prove, if he can, that the relation of the sequence in these acts is not necessary and unbroken. Or let any man deny, if he can, that innovation, here we must mean ruin everywhere. Yet they never stop dining in our ears that the ascription of glory with the Holy Spirit is unauthorized, not scriptural, and the like. We have stated that so far as the sense goes, it is the same to say glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. And glory be with the Father, and to the Son, and with the Holy Ghost. It is impossible for anyone to reject or cancel the syllable and, which is derived from the very words of our Lord. There is nothing to hinder the acceptance of its equivalent. What amount of difference and similarity there is between the two we have already shown. Their argument is confirmed by the fact that the apostle used either word indifferently, saying at one time in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God, and in another, when you have gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. No idea that it makes any difference to the connection of the names, whether he used the conjunction or the preposition. But let us see if we could bethink us of any defense of this usage of our fathers. For they who first originated the expression are more open to blame than we ourselves. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision, he has quickened you together with Christ. Did that God give the whole people into the church the boon of the life with Christ, and yet the life with Christ does not belong to the Holy Spirit? But if this is impious even to think of, it is not rightly reverent to make our confession, as they are by in nature in close conjunction. Furthermore, what boundless lack of sensibility does it show in these men to confess that the saints are with Christ? As we know is the case, Paul, on becoming absent from the body, is present with the Lord, and after departing is with Christ. So far as lies in their power to refuse and allow the Spirit to be with Christ, even to the same extent of men. Paul calls himself a laborer together with God, 1 Corinthians 3, nine. the dispensation of the gospel. Will they bring an indictment of impiety against us? If we apply the term fellow laborer to the Holy Spirit, through whom in every creature under heaven the gospel brings forth fruit, the life of them that have entrusted in the Lord is hidden, it would seem, with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, they shall say, they themselves also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3-4 through through And it is the spirit of life himself, who made us free from the law of sin. Romans 8-2 Not with Christ, but both in secret 
and hidden life with him, and in the manifestation of glory, which, which we expect to be manifested in saints. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. And is the Spirit without part or lot in the fellowship of God and of his Christ? The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And are we not allowed to spirit even the, that testimony of his fellowship with God, which we have learned from the Lord? The height of folly is reached if we, through faith in Christ, which is in spirit, hope that we shall be raised together with him and sit together in heavenly places, wherever he shall change our vile body from natural to the spiritual, yet refuse to assign to the spirit any share in sitting together, or in glory or in anything else which we have received from him, all the boons of which, in accordance with the indefensible grant him of who have promised them, we have believed ourselves worthy. Are we to allow none to the Holy Spirit as though they were all above its dignity? Yours, according to your merit, to be ever with the Lord, and you expect to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and to ever be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4.17 You declare the man who numbers and ranks the Spirit with the Father and the Son to be guilty of intolerable impiety. Can you really now deny that the Spirit is with Christ? I am ashamed to add the rest. You expect to be glorified together with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, Romans eight seventeen. But you do not glorify the spirit of holiness, Romans 1, 4, 4, together with Christ, as though he were not worthy to receive equal honor even with you. You hope to reign with, 2 Timothy 2, 12, Christ, but you do, not, but you do despite unto the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10, 29, by assigning him the rank of a slave and a subordinate. And I say this not to demonstrate that so much is due to the Spirit in the ascription of glory, but to prove the unfairness of those who will not ever give so much as this, and shrink from fellowship of the Spirit and the Son as from impiety. We could touch on these things without a sigh. Is it not plain as to be within the perception even of a child that this present state of things preludes the threatened eclipse of the faith? The undeniable has become uncertain. We profess belief in the Spirit, and then we quarrel with our own confessions. We are baptized and begin to fight again. We call upon him as the Prince of Life, and then despise him as a slave like ourselves. We received him with the Father and the Son, and we dishonored him as part of creation. Those who know not what they ought to pray for. Romans 8, 26. Even though they be inclined to utter a word of the Spirit with awe, as though coming from his dignity, yet prune down all that exceeds the exact proportion of their speech. They ought rather to bewail their wickedness, and that we are powerless to express our words of gratitude exceeds the exact proportion of their speech. They ought to rather to bewail their weakness, and that we are powerless to express our words of gratitude for the benefits which we actually are receiving. For he passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7, convicts speech of its natural inability to even approach his dignity in the least degree. As is written in the book of wisdom, exalt him as much as you can, for even yet will he far exceed. And when you exalt him, put forth all your strength and be not wary, for you can never go far enough. Very terrible is the account to be given for the words of this kind to by you. We have heard from God, who cannot lie, that for blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, there is no forgiveness. In answer to the objection that the doxology in the form of with the Spirit has no written authority, we maintain that if there is no other instance of that which is unwritten, then this must not be received. But if the greater number of our mysteries are omitted 
into our Constitution without written authority, then, in the company of many others, let us receive this one. For I hold it apostolic to abide also by the unwritten traditions. I praise you, it is said, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I have delivered them unto you. 1 Corinthians 11.2 And hold fast the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 one of these traditions is the practice which is now before us, which they have ordained from the beginning, rooted firmly in the churches, delivering it to their successors, and its use through long custom of advances pace by pace with time. As if in the court of law we were at a loss for documentary evidence, but were able to bring before you a large number of witnesses. Would you not give your vote for the acquittal? I think so. For at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall the matter be established. Deuteronomy 19.15 if we could prove clearly to you that a long period of time was in our favor, should we not have seemed to you to urge with reason that this suit ought to not be brought into the court against us? Ancient dogmas inspire a certain sense of awe, venerable as they are with the hoary antiquity. I will therefore give you a list of supporters of the word, and the time too must be taken into account in relation to what passes unquestioned. Or did not originate with us. How could it? We, in comparison with the time during which, which this word has been in vogue, are to use the words of Job, but of yesterday. I myself, if I must speak of what concerns me individually, cherish this phrase as a legacy left me by my fathers. It was delivered to me by the one who spent a long life in the service of God, and by him I was both baptized and admitted into the ministry of the church. While examining so far as I could, many of the blessed men of old used the words to which objections now made I found many worthy of credit both on account of their early date and also characteristic in which they are unlike the men of today because the exactness of their knowledge of these some coupled the words in the doxology by the preposition others by the conjunction but were in no case supposed to be acting divergently at least so far as the right sense of true religion is concerned there's the famous Irenaeus, clement of rome dionysius of rome Strange to say, Dionysius of Alexandria, in his second letter to the namesake on the conviction and defense, so concludes, I will give you its very words. Following all these, we too, since we have received from the presbyters who were before us in the form of rule, offering thanksgiving in the same terms with them, thus conclude our letter to you, to God the Father, the Son of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And no one can say that this passage has been altered. He would not have been so persistently stated that he received a form and rule if he had said in the spirit. For of this phrase, the use is abundant. It was the use of with which required defense. Dionysius, moreover, in the middle of his treatises, thus writes in opposition to the Sibelians. If by the hypostasis being three, they say that they are divided, there are three, though they like it not. Else let them destroy the divine trinity altogether. And again, most divine on this account after the unity is the trinity clement in a more primitive fashion writes god lives and lord jesus and the holy ghost let us now hear how Arrhenius, who lived near the times of the apostles mentions the spirit in his work against the heresies the apostle rightly calls carnal them that are unbridled and carried away by their own desires having no desire for the holy spirit in another passage Arrhenius says the apostle exclaimed that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven lest we, being without share of the divine spirit, and short of the kingdom of heavens. If anyone thinks Eusebius 
of Palestine, worthy of credit on the account of his wide experience. I point further to the very words he uses in discussing questions concerning the polygamy of the ancients, stirring up himself to his work he writes, invoking the holy God of the prophets, the author of light, through our Savior Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit. Even Origen, in many of his expositions of the Psalms, we find using the form of doxology with the Holy Spirit. The opinions which he held concerning the Spirit were not always and everywhere sound. Nevertheless, in many passages, even he himself reverently recognizes the fourth of established usage, expresses himself concerning the Spirit in terms consistent with true religion. It is as if I am not mistaken in the sixth book of his commentary on the Gospel of St. John that he distinctly makes the Spirit an object of worship. His words are, the washing of, or water is a symbol the cleaning of the soul, which is washed clean of all filth that comes from wickedness. But nonetheless, it is also by itself to him who yields himself to the Godhead, the adorable Trinity, through the power of the invocations and the origin and source of blessings. And again, in his exposition on the epistle to the Romans with the holy powers, he says, are able to receive the only begotten and the Godhead of the Holy Spirit. Thus, I apprehend the powerful influence of tradition, frequently appeals men to express themselves in terms contradictory to their own opinions. Moreover, this form of the doxology was, was not unknown even to Africanus, the historian. The fifth book of his epitome of the times, he says, We who know the weight of these terms are not ignorant of the grace of faith, rendered thanks to the Father who bestowed on us his own creatures, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and our Lord, to whom be glory and majesty with the Holy Ghost forever. The rest of the passages may perhaps be viewed with suspicion, or may really have been altered. The fact that having been tampered with will be difficult to detect because the difference consists in a single syllable. Those, however, which I have quoted at length are out of the reach of any dishonest manipulation and can easily be verified from the actual works. I will now adduce another piece of evidence which might perhaps seem insignificant, but because of its antiquity, in no wise be omitted by a defendant who is indicted on a charge of innovation. It seems fitting to our fathers not to receive the gift of light at the eventide in silence, but on its appearing, immediately give thanks. Who was the offer of these words of thanksgiving at the lighting of our lamps? We are not able to say. The people, however, under the ancient form, and no one has ever reckoned guilty of impiety those who say, We praise Father, Son, and God's Holy Spirit. And if anyone knows the hymn of Anathages, which, as he was hurrying on to his perfecting by fire, he left us a kind of farewell gift to his friends, he knows the mind of, of the martyrs as to the spirit. On his head I shall say no more. But where shall I rank the great Gregory, and the words uttered by him? Shall we not place among apostles and prophets a man who walked by the same spirit as they? Second Corinthians twelve eighteen who never through all his days diverged from the footprints of the saints, who maintained as long as he lived the exact principles of evangelical citizenship. I am sure that we shall do the truth a wrong if we refuse to number that soul with the people of God, shining as it did like a beacon in the church of God. For by the fellow working of the Spirit, the power which he had over demons was tremendous. So gifted was he with the grace of the word, for obedience to the faith among the nations, Romans 1.5, that although only 17 Christians were handed over to him, he brought the whole people alike in town and country through the knowledge to God. He too, by Christ's mighty name, commanded even more 
commanded even rivers to change their course and caused the lake which afforded the ground of quarrel to come to some covetous brethren to dry up moreover his predictions of things to come were such as no wise to fall short of those great prophets to recount all of his wonderful works in detail would be too strong a task by the superabundance of gifts wrought in him by the spirit in all power and in signs and marvels he was styled a second moses by the very enemies of the church thus in all that he through grace accomplished alike by work word and deed a light seemed ever shining token of the heavenly power from the unseen which followed him to this day he is a great object of admiration to the people of his own neighborhood and his memory established in the churches ever fresh and green is not dulled by the length of time thus not a practice not a word not a mystic rite has been added to the church besides what he bequeathed to it hence truly on the account of the antiquity of their institution many of the ceremonies appear to be defective for successors in the administration of the churches could not endure to accept any subsequent discovery, in addition to what he had his sanction. Now one of the institutions of Gregory is the very form of the doxology to which the objection is now made. Persevered by the church on the authority of his tradition, a statement which may be verified without much trouble by anyone who likes to make a short journey. That our Firmilian held this belief is testified by the writings which he has left. Contemporaries also of the illustrious Metalistus say that he was of the same opinion. But why quote ancient authorities? Now in the East are not the maintainers of true religion known chiefly by this one term, separated from their adversaries by a watchword. I have heard from a certain Mestopolian, a man at once well skilled in the language and our unperverted opinions, that by the usage of his country it is impossible to, for anyone, even though he may wish to do so, to express himself in any other way and that they are compelled by the idiom of their mother tongue to offer the doxology by the symbol and, or, I should more accurately say, by the equivalent expressions. We Cappadonians, too, so speak in the dialect of our country, Sperry having so early as the division of tongues foreseen the utility of the phrase, and what of the whole West, almost from Illyricum to the boundaries of our world? Does it not support this word? How that can I be an innovator? a creator of new terms when i adduced as originators and champions of the word whole nations cities custom going back beyond the memory of man men who were pillars of the church and conspicuous for all knowledge and spiritual power for this cause this banded array of foes is set in motion against me town and village in remotest regions are full of my attackers sad and painful are these things to them that they seek peace but great is the reward for patience for sufferings endured for the faith's sake so besides these, let swords flash, let axe be wetted, let our fire burn fiercer than that of Babylon, let every instrument of torture be set in motion against me. To me, nothing is more fearful than failure to fear the threats which, which the Lord has directed against them that blaspheme the spirit. Kindly readers will find a satisfactory defense in what I have said, and that I accept a phrase so dear and so familiar to the saints and confirmed by the usage so long and so much as from the day when the gospel was first preached up to our own time it is shown to have been admitted to the full rites within the churches and what is of the great monument to have been accepted as bearing a sense of in accordance with the holiness and true religion but before the great tribunal what have i prepared to say in my defense this that i was in the first place led to the glory of the holy spirit by the honor conferred by the lord associating himself with himself as with his father at baptism 
Matthew 28, 19. Secondly, by the introduction of each of us to the knowledge of God by such initiation. Above all, by the fear of the threatened punishment, shutting out the thought of all indignity and unworthy conception. But our opponents, what will they say? After showing neither reverence for the Lord's honor nor fear of its threats, what kind of defense will they have for their blasphemy? It is for them to make up their mind about their own action, and even now change it. For my own part, I would pray that most earnestly that the good God will make his peace rule in the hearts of all, so that these men who are swollen with pride and set in battle array against us may be calmed by the spirit of meekness and of love, and that if they have become utterly savage and are in untamable state, he will grant to us at least to bear with long suffering all that we have to bear at their hands, in short, to them that have in themselves the sentence of death. It is not suffering for the sake of the faith which is painful, which is hard to bear, is to fail to fight its battle. The athlete does not so much complain of being wounded in the struggle as of not being able even to secure admission into the stadium. Perhaps this was the time for silence spoken of by Solomon the wise. For when life is buffeted by so fierce a storm that all intelligence of those who are instructed in the word is filled by the deceit of the false reasoning confounded, like an eye filled with dust, when men are stunned by strange and awful noises, when all the world is shaken and everything tottering to its fall, what profits it to cry as I am really crying to the wind? To what then shall I make our our present condition? It may be compared, I think, to some naval battle which has arisen out of time old quarrels. It's fought by men who cherish this deadly hate against one another. Of long experience in naval warfare and eager for the fight, I look, I beg you, at the picture thus raised before your eyes. See the rival fleets rushing in dread array to the attack. With a burst of uncontrollable fury, they engage and fight it out. Fancy, if you like, the ships driven to and fro by a raging tempest, while thick darkness falls from the clouds and blackens all the scenes to that which watchwords are indistinguishable in the confusion, and all distinction between friend and foe is lost. To fill up the details of the imaginary picture, suppose a sea swollen with billows and whirled from the deep, while a venomous torrent of rain pours down from the clouds, and the terrible waves raise high. From every quarter of heaven the winds beat upon one point. Where both the fleets are dashed one against the other. Of the combatants, some are turning traitors, some are deserting in the very thick of the fight, some have at one and the same moment urged on their boats, all beaten by the gale, and to advance against their assailants. Jealousy of authority and the lust of individual mastery splits the sailors into parties which deal mutual death to one another. Think besides all this, the confused and unmeaning roar sounding over all the sea, the howling winds, the crashing vessels from the boiling surf, and the yells of the combatants as they try to express their varying emotions and every kind of noise. So not a word from an admiral or a pilot can be heard. The disorder, the confusion is tremendous for the extremity of misfortune. When life is despaired of, gives men license of every kind of wickedness, supposed to that the men are all smitten with the incurable plague of mad love of glory, so that they do not cease from the struggle each to get the better of the other, while their ship is actually settling down into the deep. Turn now, I beg you, from this figurative description to the unhappy reality. Did it not at one time appear that the Arian schism, after all its separation into a sect, opposed the church of God, stood itself alone in hostile array? But when 
The attitude of our foe against us was changed from one of long standing and bitter strife into one of open warfare. Then, as is well known, the war was split up in more ways than I could tell into many subdivisions, so that all men were stirred to a state of hatred, alike by common party, spirit, and individual suspicion. But what storm at sea was ever so fierce and wild as this tempest of the churches? And every landmark of the fathers has moved. Every foundation, every bulwark of opinion has been shaken. Everything buoyed upon the island sound is dashed about and shaken down. We attack one another. We are overthrown by one another. If our enemy is not the first to strike us, we are wounded by a comrade at our side. If a foeman is stricken and falls, his fellow soldier tramples him down. There is at least this bond of union between us that we hate our common foes, but no sooner have the enemy gone than we find enemies in one another. And who can make a complete list of all the wrecks? Some have gone to the bottom on the attack of the enemy, some through the unsuspected treachery of their allies, some from the blundering of their own officers. We see, as it were, whole churches, crews and all, dashed and shattered upon sunken reefs of disingenuous heresy, while others of the enemies of the spirit of salvation have seized the helm and made shipwreck of the faith. 1 Timothy 1.19 then the disturbances wrought by the princes of the world have caused the downfall of the people with a violence unmatched by that of a hurricane of whirlwind. Luminaries of the world, which God set to give light to the souls of the people, have been driven from their homes, and a darkness very gloomy and disheartening has settled on the churches. The terror of universal ruin is already imminent, and yet their mutual robbery is so unbounded as to blunt all sense of danger. Individual hatred is more important than the general common warfare. For men by whom their immediate gratification of ambition is esteemed more highly than the rewards that await us in the time to come, prefer the glory of getting better of their opponents to securing the common welfare of mankind. So all men alike, each as best he can, lift the hand of murder against one another. Harsh rises the cry of a combatants encountering one another in dispute. Already all the church is almost full of the inarticulate screams, the unintelligible noises, rising from the ceaseless agitations that divert the right rule of doctrine of true religion. Now in the direction of excess, now in that of defect. On the one hand are they who confound the person and are carried away into Judaism. On the other hand are they that, through the opposition of the natures, pass into heathenism. Between these opposite parties, inspired scripture is powerless to mediate. The traditions of the apostles cannot suggest terms of aberration. Plain speaking is fatal to friendship and disagreement in opinion, all the ground that is wanted for a quarrel. No oaths of confederacy are so efficacious in keeping men true to sedition as their likeness in error. Everyone is a theologian, though he have his soul branded with more spots than could be counted. The result is that innovators find plentiful supply of men ripe for faction, while self-appointed scions of the house place hunters reject the government of the Holy Spirit and divide the chief dignities of the church. The institutions of the gospel have now been everywhere, thrown into confusion by want of discipline. There is an indescribable pushing for the chief places while every self-advertiser tries to force himself into high office. The result of this lust for ordering is that our people are in a state of wild confusion for a lack of being ordered. The exhortations of those in authority are rendered wholly purposeless and void because there is not a man but 
out of his ignorant imprudence, thinks that just so much as his duty is to give orders to other people as it is to obey anyone else. So since no human voice is strong enough to be heard in such a disturbance, I reckon silence more profitable than speech. For if there is any truth in the words of the preacher, the words of the wise men are heard in the quiet. In the present condition of things, any discussion of them must be anything but becoming. I am moreover restrained by the prophet saying, Therefore, the prudent shall keep silent in that time, for it is an evil time. A time will when some trip up their neighbor's heels, some stamp on a man when he is down, others clap their hands, joy, but there is not one to feel for the fallen, hold out a helping hand, although according to the ancient law he is not uncondemned, who passes by even his enemy's breast, enemy's beast of burden fallen under his load. This is not the state of things now. Why not? The love of many has waxed cold. Brotherly concord is destroyed. The very name of unity is ignored. Brotherly admonitions are heard no more. Nowhere is there Christian piety. Nowhere falls the tear of sympathy. Now there is no one to receive the weak of faith, but mutual hatred has blazed so high among fellow clansmen that they are more delighted at the neighbor's fall than at their own success. Just as in a plague, men of most regular lives suffer the same sickness as the rest because they catch the disease by communication with the infected. So nowadays, by the evil robbery which possesses our soul, we are carried away to annihilation, and we are all of us as bad as the others. Hence, merciless and sour sit the judges of the erring. Unfeeling and hostile are the critics of the well-disposed. To such depth is this evil rooted among us that we have become more brutish than the brutes. They do at least herd with their fellows, or in most savage warfare, as with our own people. For all these reasons, I ought to have kept silent. But I was drawn in another direction by love, which seeks not our own. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Desires to overcome every difficulty put in her way by time and circumstance. I was, too, I was taught, too, by the children at Babylon that when there is no one to support the cause of true religion, we ought alone and and all unaided to do our duty. They, from out of the midst of the flame, lifted up their voices in hymns and praises to God, reeking not of the host that set the truth at naught, but sufficient, three only that they were with one another. Wherefore, we too are undismayed at the cloud of our enemies, and resting our hope on the aid of the Spirit, have with all boldness proclaimed the truth. Had I not done so, it would have truly have been terrible that the blasphemers of the Spirit should so easily be emboldened in their attack upon true religion, that we, so many an ally and supporter at our side, should shrink from the service of that doctrine, which by tradition of the fathers has been persevered by an unproken sequence of memory to our own day. A further powerful incentive to, to my undertaking was the warm fervor of our love unfeigned, the seriousness of your disposition and guarantee that you would not publish what I was about to say to all the world, not because it would be worth making known, but to avoid casting pearls before the swine. My task is now done. If you find what I said satisfactory, let this make an end to our discussion on these matters. If you think any point requires fur further explanation, pray do not hesitate to pursue the investigation with all diligence, to add your information by putting any uncontroversial question. Either through me or through the others, the Lord will grant full explanation on matters which have yet to be made clear, according to the knowledge supplied to the worthy by the Holy Spirit. Amen.
and thus ends St. Basil's argument on the divinity of the Holy Spirit and why it is necessary to believe that he is part of the Godhead equal with the Father and Son, his work, the Spiritu, the Sancto. Well, thank you so much for listening to Voices of Church Pass. I am your host, Rob Barnhart. Brothers and sisters of Christ, may you persevere steadfast in one true faith given unto the saints everlasting. Brothers and sisters of Christ, may I stand with you one day before my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, free from sin and free from death in perfect unity in the one and true faith, able to worship our Lord as we ought to now. Till then, God bless.